Hey, good evening everyone. Welcome back to our evening Dhamma session. Today we are looking at the Jurla Hatipadopama Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 27, if you're following along. So this uh, this discourse is, I think, quite special. They're all special, but this one is especially special. But first of all, I thought I'd acknowledge the fact that we have visitors today, which is always nice. Apparently, the meetup <coughs> that someone submitted is working to get the word out. So thank you all for coming. It's good to. See people interested in meditation and Buddhism in general. So, but this sutta is apparently the sutta that was first preached by Mahinda. The Mahinda was the son of King Ashoka, who brought Buddhism to Sri Lanka. And so, it appears to be a sutta that was chosen for um, missionarism or whatever the equivalent is in Buddhism chosen to spread for the spread of Buddhism and I think with good reason it's another one of these suttas that attempts in, in an, its own way to sort of encapsulate the practice a lot of the information here will be familiar but it has its own unique take on on the on the path, or it approaches it from a unique perspective. So, I thought it would be interesting to look at it. I apologize in advance. I think I'm going to <coughs> going to be coughing a bit because I think because I got the flu shot and the flu vaccine. I think has given me a cough. So, live and learn. Maybe I won't get the flu shot next time. Anyway, past is past. So the story, this story is um, the story starts with these two a conversation between two people. Janusoni is a Brahmin, and Pilotika is a, a wanderer. Samana maybe is the word. Let's see what word do they use. All right, Paribhajaka. Paribhajaka is someone who has left the home life, someone who has gone forth from home life. So it's a word they used for for anyone who has made the decision to leave society <coughs> and dedicate their lives to religion, really, in a general sense. And so it's used to describe Buddhists. Buddhist monks are paribhajikas. I think, actually I'm not sure if it's, but you know, the meaning is there, it's the same. I don't know if they actually use that word. But it seems to me it's sort of universal, anyway. No, it's generally, it was more specific, more usually used for non-Buddhist um, religious people to distinguish them from those who lived at home. And so a Brahmin would be someone who lived the household life, sort of a noble or a high-class aristocrat kind of thing. Someone who uh, had been versed, been been taught the Vedas, and it was the prevalent religion at the time, the religion of the Brahmins. And uh, so Brahmin Janasoni is driving his chariot with white drawn by white horses sort of a opulent sort of spectacle and he sees this wanderer pilotica coming in the distance and asks him he says where are you coming from in the middle of the day wondering where he's uh, where you where have you been he said oh i'm coming from the presence of the recluse gotama he's coming from seeing the buddha they called him samana gotama 
but uh, they weren't Buddhists, so they didn't have any sense that he was enlightened. But it turns out that uh, Pilotika actually does have something really good to say about the Buddha. What he says is quite interesting, and it sets up the rest of the sutta. He says, oh, you've been to see my, uh, Samanagotana. What do you think of his his proficiency or his his clarity of wisdom? Basically, what do you think of him as a teacher? Is he wise? And he says, uh, do you think him... Yeah, the Pali's not so clear, but I think Bhikkhu Bodhi's done something good here. He says, is he wise? Do you think he's wise? What do you think of him as a teacher? Do you think he's wise? Pandito Manyeti? Do you think he's wise? And his answer is, is instructive. And there's something to say about this. He says, sir, who am I to know? The recluse Gotama's lucidity of wisdom. One would surely have to be his equal to know the recluse Gotama's lucidity of wisdom. Who am I to say how wise he is? You'd have to be his equal to say how to be able to understand. It's an important point. Um, you hear about a lot of Buddhists. You hear a lot of Buddhists will will be quick to talk about how their teachers are enlightened or how their teachers were enlightened or even just how the Buddha was enlightened you know? it's very easy to make claims that go beyond what you actually know go beyond the fact you know, they, they enter into the realm of blind faith or, or blind belief uh, overestimation of your own understanding of your own certainty you hear people who are very certain that their teachers are enlightened or that this monk that monk was enlightened or even that the Buddha was enlightened I think what this man this uh, wanderer says is instructive he says how should I know this is what I usually say people ask me if my teachers are enlightened I said how should I know how could you possibly know just, you'd have to be their equal This is his, what he has to say I think that's, it's also quite impressive It's, it's humble uh, And it's, it shows a certain amount of wisdom itself Because he understands more than just This ordinary, I believe, therefore it must be true He understands the limitations of belief And uh, he understands the limits of his ability to comprehend the Buddha's or, or comprehend anyone's in, enlightenment or wisdom But he also does something very you know, Something else, he, he praises the Buddha Right, by saying I'm not, by saying he's not his equal By admitting that the Buddha is far, far above him Which is, which impresses Janasoni He says, wow, that's, that's some high praise You know, you're supposed to be You're esteemed to be quite wise yourself But here you're saying you can't tell how wise the Buddha is because he's way above you. And again he says, Who am I to praise the reckless Gotama? He's praised the reckless Gotama is praised by by the praised. He's praised by the praised as the best among gods and humans. So he's got some fairly high lofty uh, praise for the Buddha And the, this Janusoni is quite surprised This is, I guess, the first he's really heard about this This uh, Samana Gautama he, The first he, he's really First sense he's really got that Wow, he, he maybe he, this guy really is something It's quite surprised Janusoni's uh, His word has some meaning to it Some weight to it and he says, "Why? What do you see in in what do you see in him that uh, gives you such firm confidence?" <coughs> and here he is, he gives the 
his simile on the elephant's footprint. And in brief, I won't go on in too much detail, but he talks about the four four types of people. <coughs> well, first he says, suppose uh, someone, a ranger, someone, a wise woodsman, were to enter in an elephant wood and were to see a big elephant's footprint. Big one. No, not just an ordinary elephant's, but this footprint. This is a wise sort of uh, hunter or woods person. When he sees the big elephant's footprint, and upon seeing the footprint, it's that footprint and is enough to tell you, oh, that's that's not an ordinary elephant, that's a big elephant. That's a, f a bull elephant. That's a, the leader of the herd. That, that there is the leader of the herd. And he says, in the same way, when I saw the four footprints of the Buddha, of, the, of Gautama, I came to the, the conclusion that he was enlightened. Samma Sambuddho Bhagava Swakato Bhagava Dhammo Supatipano Bhagavato Savaka Sangho. So he mentions the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. The Buddha is indeed perfectly enlightened, the Dhamma is indeed well taught by him, and those who practice are indeed well practiced. Practice his teachings are indeed well practiced. So, I mean, this is really the most lofty sort of praise you can give to a religious teaching, right? This is the question we all have about religious teachings, traditions, practices. So it's instructive, I think, to look at why one might have have confidence and what one should look for to gain confidence in a, in a teaching. That's not all the sutta's about, but it's an interesting aspect. And then he says, the four footprints are the four types of people. So there we have the Brahmins. Where are we? A nobles. And then Brahmin, the nobles are the Kshatriyas, then the Brahmins, and then the householders, and then the recluses. So, yeah, it's four types of people. And he says, of the nobles, the Brahmins, and the, the householders, these, these are, look at these people. I saw people of all three of these groups who were clever, knowledgeable about Drakman's brothers, who were sharp in their arguments, they could debate with the best of them <coughs> and these sorts these were the guys from all these groups I've seen from all three groups they would wander around to teachers and ask them all sorts of difficult questions and they would uh, they would demolish the views of others with their sharp wits, the best of the best and these were the really the religious <coughs> or spiritual leaders of all these groups and then they hear that the 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 Gotama is here. And they hear about this Samana Gotama. And they say, okay, well, we'll go and ask him a question. And they think up a sort of a question that is really difficult to answer, and they think he won't be able to answer this, and then we'll show that he's, we'll be able to, to outwit him. And then they go to the Buddha. And they say hello to the Buddha, and then the Buddha teaches them his teaching. And he urges, rouses them, gladdens them with a talk on the Dhamma. After having been instructed, urged, roused, and gladdened, they do not so much as ask him the question. They had a question in mind, but they just don't get around to it. It's just so special to be in his presence, and they're just so overcome by his presence and his wisdom. Not, it's not just magic or something, it's not just charisma, but by his teachings. They abandon the question. So how could they refute him? In actual fact, they become his disciples. Same with the fourth group, fourth group the recluses. But they don't just become his disciples. They're, they're different because these ones tend to ask him to become uh, bhikkhus, to, to, to go forth in his dispensation, to become his students. And they're the ones that tend to become enlightened because they really put effort into it. And then they say, we were very nearly lost, we very nearly perished. For formerly we claimed that we were recluses, though we were not rec really recluses. 
We claimed that we were Brahmins, though we were not truly Brahmins. We claimed that we were Arahants, though we were not truly Arahants. But now we are recklessness, now we are Brahmins, now we are Arahants. And these were the four footprints. And this really impresses Janusoni to hear Pilotika talk like this. And he seems to be convinced that, yes indeed, if, uh, if what you say is true, here we have a very special teacher. Well, it's what you see in the suttas. You see the Buddha um, convincing. <coughs> There's one very special case uh, of uh, I think it's Udai is the word. Is the sort of the U and U Udena maybe I can't remember. But there's a certain lay disciple of the giants, and so there's this talk about how he became converted. He went to see the Buddha, thinking he would refute the Buddha's doctrine, and it was just like this. He didn't even ask, ask his question. He just just overcome by the Buddha's wisdom. And so Janusoni gets down off of his carriage and he holds his hands up in reverential salute towards where the the direction of the blessed one, of the Buddha, and says Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa three times. Honor to the Blessed One, accomplished and fully enlightened. That's, of course, many of you recognize as the chant we do uh, in our daily chanting and and when we take the precepts, for example. So it's it's that ancient. When we chant Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa, we're chanting something that has been handed down from the time that these suttas were written. Well, most likely before, of course. And then he says, "Well, wouldn't wouldn't it be great if I could meet him? Some t I I gotta make an appointment or find time to go and see the Buddha." And then he does. So he goes to see the Buddha, and this is the content. This is the main portion of this this discourse. So he relates this to the Buddha, and he says, "Wow, you got some really high praise coming from this this pilotika." The Buddha doesn't deny that that's all true, but he says, I've got a better simile uh, of an elephant's footprint. Because suppose you see an elephant's footprint, and it's big, and it looks like a real bull elephant, the leader of the pack, but a real skilled woodsman wouldn't be convinced that that's the leader of the pack, because there are big female elephants as well. Um, not to put down females and put up well, I mean it does sound like that, but it's just a simile. The point is this this may not be the leader of the herd. It could be an older elephant, could be any kind of elephant. And then he follows it and uh, then he sees some scrapings high up in the trees. And an ordinary woodsman would say, Oh well that must be the bull elephant, but he says, No, no. Other elephants could make that as well. And then he follows along and, and sees these uh, more footprints and more scrapings and then finally he comes and sees the big bull elephant. And when he, only when he sees the big bull elephant is he sure that this indeed is the big bull elephant, this is the leader of the herd. <coughs> and so the point he's making is that that I mentioned in the beginning, it's um, it's one thing to have praise, it's one thing to have uh, confidence in someone. It's another to actually to actually see them for what they are. And so, really, the rest of the sutta is is it's framed and framed around that um, or within that. So the idea is, how does one come to have proper confidence? Which is really an important point. I mean, it's not, of course, why we practice. We're not practicing specifically to have confidence in the practice. But um, It's a dilemma that we have, or it's a problem that we have when we seek out spiritual teachings, is that we want to know which ones to follow. We want to know which one we should follow. 
and how do you so how you gain confidence in a teaching is is very important in some sense it's even more important than actually gaining the results for 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 the for a, a potential practitioner because they don't want to put out effort until they've gained some form of confidence right Unfortunately, it doesn't go that way. It doesn't exactly work that way. And the way it does work in 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 Buddhism, so there's you could take it as being three separate ways. You know, three separate ways of gaining faith. The first is that you put out faith to start. You know, you quench your, your doubts and you you become convinced by some external report like this. You know, Pilotika. He's seen all these other people who have just been converted to Buddhism, and that's enough for him, and that gives him confidence. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think, in fact, that's a good way to gain preliminary confidence. If everybody else is doing it, you know, we go on the internet and we look up reviews on Amazon, we only buy the stuff with good reviews. That's reasonable, right? That's a good point, but doesn't stop the fact that you still sometimes get garbage and it turns out that all the reviews were wrong and it still can happen but it's it's useful the other way is that you you uh, um, <coughs> you you can Well, I mean, I guess so. In, in one, on the one hand, you can be convinced before, so you, you gain conviction before. But on the other, there's another way that, um, for some religious teachings, you're expected to have faith throughout, right? So you have faith in the beginning, and then you dive right in. Is one way. Um, another way is that you just are expected to have faith, and faith is part of your practice, right? Meaning. For some religious teachings, it's it's a continuous effort to believe, right? Now, I don't know that this was such a big. Well, I think it w it was actually there was some of this in in the Buddhist time, but we see this in other religions where you're expected to believe and believe, and 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 having faith is is in in something that is never shown to you, that is never proven, that 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 is never. Um, supported by evidence is is really actually a part of the practice. So in Buddhism, it's it's a process of practicing and gaining faith. Now there are these external you know, factors do exist, but true confidence in the Buddha's teaching isn't a problem. It's not as big a problem as people think. You know, in the beginning, it is common for meditators to wonder. You know how how why sh why should I practice Buddhism? You can't give me any reason. You can't exp you can't convince me. They have a hard time being convinced that it's useful, thinking they have that they have this dilemma. When in fact, it's not really a dilemma, because as they practice, to the proportion that they practice, to the extent that they practice, they will gain confidence as they go, because they will gain evidence as they go. Is the point? The evidence is not withheld. The evidence is continuous. As you practice, you see that it's working. Um, and it's 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 heartening to see this. I mean, I've had I've had incredibly skeptical students who, you know, w w when they were able to let go of the, their concern. They're concerned that this might be the wrong path, and actually try it. They were pleasantly surprised, surprised, almost almost universally. I can't think of anyone who who put who gave the practice a real try and said. I mean, I do remember one person who uh, asked me, well, "What do I do if this isn't working?" And I said, "You shouldn't practice." And I think they did actually stop practicing. I'm not sure, um, but it's rare. Uh, and so it's heartening to see that you, know, you, you, you do really see that hey, it, it does actually work and so that's what the Buddha is going to talk about and so that's the so getting into the real heart of this sutta we're talking about 
What is it that we practice? So we're shifting now. We're not doing the, the the story part is all about how you believe something, why you should believe something. But then the Buddha starts to give his teachings. And he says, Okay, so suppose um or here a, a, a Buddha is a Buddha arises in the world. Someone who is fully accomplished, fully enlightened, perfect in knowledge, in conduct, sublime, knower of worlds, incomparable leaders of persons to be tamed. This is another stock phrase. It's the Itipiso Bhagava Rahang Sama Sambuddho Vija Charana Sampano Sugato Lokavidu Anuttara Anutro Purisadama Sarati Sa Sata Deva Manusanang Buddho Bhagava. So Imang Lokang and so on. This we also do chant chant. We also chant. So basically a fully enlightened being. And then there comes a person who hears the Buddha's teaching and by and hearing the teaching he gains faith in in the Buddha. The faith comes from instruction. It comes from seeing that well this instruction is reasonable, is beneficial, is helpful, it's uh, it's logical and it's insightful. You know, it's what what is I think quite inspiring about Buddhism, especially the mindfulness practice, is that it's it's clear and insightful. It's in many ways different from other religious teachings that seem to be more ephemeral or no, ethereal, right? They're dealing with concepts that are um, abstract or hard to understand, whereas mindfulness is quite practical and quite universal and quite direct. I mean, it deals... why we talk about the Four Noble Truths and, and the, these things that are seen often as difficult to swallow or, or unpalatable. And when in fact they're really dealing with the problem, they're dealing with what, the reasons why we seek out answers. We seek out answers because we have suffering, because we're looking for happiness, we're looking for peace. And Buddhism doesn't talk much about anything but that. So this person gains faith, and having gained faith, they consider, boy, living at home there's no way I'm going to actually be able to put this into practice and it's it's heartening because they at this point think it's worth putting into practice right it's not that this realization just came to them it's that they've suddenly had the realization that this is worth dedicating oneself to you know, they haven't before found something this worth dedicating oneself to and of course this is this is sort of parallel to what we see happening today People coming, the parallels, people coming to our meditation center, meditation centers around the world, because they realize that it's hard to practice at home. But for this sort of person, the Buddha is talking about the ideal, and, and this whole teaching from here on is going to be the full path, so not everything is going to be uh, necessary. You, know, you obviously don't have to become a monk to become enlightened or to practice the teaching. But this person says, if I want to practice it fully and completely, I'm going to shave my hair and beard, put on a robe, and go forth, become a pabajita, become a monk. So on a later occasion, abandoning a small or large fortune, abandoning a small or large circle of relatives, leaving behind their family, leaving behind their family, leaving behind their friends, leaving behind society. I mean, it's really, it's an important point here that we get, I've talked about this, I think, uh, recently in the Dhammapada last week, no? about uh, our getting stuck and caught up in, the, the, in, in society, in the artificial uh, universe of humanity, where we think this is important and that's important, and we have all these important uh, concepts that have been drilled into us. It's important to have a job. It's important to make money. It's important to see that these are artificial. 
and that even if you don't make money, even if you're a, a, a beggar on the street, you're still going to live and you're still going to have experiences. It doesn't change the nature of reality. It doesn't lead to your doom. And this realization that uh, much of what we get caught up in is meaningless. Not only meaningless, but uh, a distraction from the practice of what's meaningful. And so one abandons that and goes forth. Having become a monk, the person begins with morality. And Buddha goes through a whole list of morality. I'm going to have to skip through this, I think. Not skip it, but we'll, we'll shorten it. So the first is, of course, the um, five precepts, abandoning, killing. You should really read this because it's got a good... Um, summary of various types of morality but no killing, abandoning, killing, stealing uh, abandoning sexuality so it becomes celibate uh, abandons false speech and becomes speaks truth, adheres to truth is trustworthy and reliable and it's a really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful well put it's quite a beautiful rendition of the five precepts Plus, there's, there's extra stuff here. False speech, malicious speech, uh, harsh speech, useless speech. Obtains from injuring seeds and plants. Eats only one meal a day. Mm -hmm. A lot of monks don't even get that done. But this is a person who's dedicated on eating only one, one meal a day. Abstains from dancing, singing, music, theatrical shows. Abstains from wearing garna garlands, scents, unguents. I mean, all this is pretty standard, but it, it's not saying that some monks do this or these sorts of things. It's saying that uh, based on the practice or as a, as a part of being a monk, abstaining from so many things that distract us. Abstains from accepting raw food, raw meat, because he doesn't want to collect and cook. It's just, whatever I get, whatever is given to me, I'll eat that. So they, they act like a beggar almost, right? Not begging, but even even less than that. Eating what is actually given to them because someone wants to give them something. How How minimal is that, right? It's not even asking for people to give you something. It's only on the off chance that someone actually wants you to stay alive. That's how monks live. It's the absolute minimum. It's the only. It's it's one step removed from starving to death, right? It's saying, well, starving to death would be i would be in in some sense ideal. Not eating at all would be in some sense ideal because you don't have to. Then you don't have to get involved with economy at all. But the problem with that is you would die. And because we don't want to die, then we'll give an allowance to... Well, if someone gives you food, then you can eat. That's basically it. If someone doesn't give you food, you don't eat. But if they give you food, okay. And there's even a little bit more of an allowance. Monks are allowed to wander, not asking for food, but looking to see if anyone's giving food. And if someone is giving food, you can take it. That's absolute minimalism, right? Abstains from going on errands and running messages. Yeah, this is a problem. Some monks get caught up in working for lay people. Again, it's all about the discipline. It's kind of a selfish discipline in a way. It's a discipline to really focus on what's self-development, right? Because you can't develop yourself when you're distracted by all these things. It sounds kind of selfish, but you understand what the point is. The point is to develop yourself. I mean, our meditators here, we never think of them as selfish. We provide them with food and shelter and teaching and gladly we do it, happily we do it, feeling honored we do it because we appreciate so much their practice, we appreciate so greatly what they're doing. I would defend them to the end of the earth and, and be uh, honored to have the opportunity, I'm honored to have the opportunity to host them. We treat them with great respect.
We don't think of them as selfish at all. We think of them as doing the greatest work because they're making themselves better people and who doesn't want better people in the world? Becomes content with the four requisites, robes and and uh, food. Well, becomes content with robes to protect his body and alms food to maintain his stomach. And wherever he goes, he sets out taking only these with him just as a bird, wherever it goes, flies with its wings as its only burden. Some very poetic language here. A monk is like a bird, only the two wings, only the robes and a bowl. That's all basic morality. What he's talking about here is sort of the, the basic life of someone who has really achieved minimalism, which is useful. I mean, it's not necessary. You can do all meditation at home, but I mean, it's a good template for us, for all of us to emulate to the extent that we're able whatever extent you can simplify your life it will be to your to your benefit in terms of cultivating peace and and gaining spiritual wisdom so then we move into actual practice he says on seeing a form with the eye and i really appreciate this i i, I bring this up again and again when people talk about uh how meditation how, how mindfulness or using say the mantra repeating to yourself seeing, seeing how it gets in the way of actually seeing. Well, the Buddha here says, and he says this in many places, on seeing a, a form with the eye, he does not grasp at its signs and features. Nanimita gahi nanubhyanjana gahi. Meaning one doesn't pay attention to the details. It's true. When you say to yourself seeing, seeing, yes, it does get in the way of you fully seeing the object. And it's meant to. It's meant to let seeing be just seeing, because that's what's really happening. When you see a cat, the whole cat thing is going on in the in the brain and the mind. Uh, the seeing is the only real part of the experience. And so when you say to yourself, seeing, seeing, that's all it becomes. It becomes an experience of seeing. Since if you leave the, the eye unguarded, if you're not guarding it with just seeing, seeing evil, unwholesome states, evil, evil meaning they're going to lead to problems, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief, liking and disliking basically, might invade him. Of course, he's seen, seen as being problematic, right? In Buddhism, this is really the problem, the liking and the disliking. Because it becomes habitual and it leads to things like anger and aversion and it leads to addiction and attachment. It leads to a whole bunch of problems. All the problems in the world really can be boiled down to our judgments of things, liking them, disliking them, reacting to them, making more out of them than they actually are. On smelling, on tasting, or sorry, hearing, smelling, tasting, guards the ear, guards the nose, guards the tongue guards the body on feeling and guards the mind on thinking because if they're not guarded uh, the defilements will come in <coughs> one practices awareness in daily life when walking one knows one's walking when and this is the sampajanya saminjite paharite when when uh, extending one's arm when reach when when uh, flexing one's arm when looking ahead, looking behind, when carrying your wearing your clothes, when carrying things, when eating, drinking, when urinating and defecating, I always bring this one up. The Buddha said, even when you're urinating and defecating, it should be. I mean, that's how comprehensive it is. When you're in the shower, that should be a meditation. When you're eating lunch, all of this can be incorporated into your practice. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up. When you fall asleep at night, you should lie, lie down and be mindful. and Try your best to stay mindful until you fall asleep. And as soon as you wake up, you should try to be mindful of that you're lying, that you're going to stand up.
Furthermore, they, this person resorts to a secluded resting place. Find a place that is secluded where you can practice. If you got a nearby forest or a tree or a mountain or a ravine or a cave, an open space, a heap of straw, or just your bedroom if it's your own room. The bedrooms, if they're full of all sorts of distractions, that's a problem. You have to get rid of things like beds and well, things like phones and computers and books and so on. It's good to go off into the forest because you don't have any of these things distracting you. And on returning from 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 food, from alms round, one sits down and establishes mindfulness and abandoning covetousness for the world, one abides free for with a mind free from covetousness, purifying the mind of covetousness. Ill will, hatred, uh, sloth and torpor. So the five the five hindrances, if you recognize these, restlessness and worry, uh, doubt. The five hindrances are they're a, a, a way of looking at the defilements in the mind from a practical point of view. Uh, I was asked recently whether what the difference between the defilements and the asava is. So there's many different ways of describing the defilements depending on the context. It's the same qualities of mind, talked about in different ways. But hindrances is the practical uh, sort of uh, enumeration. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha talks about the five hindrances. These are a meditator's perspective on the defilements liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction and doubt those are my simple words for them of course they're more complicated than that, complex than that liking can be wanting, disliking can be boredom, frustration, fear, sadness, depression drowsiness is you know, tiredness or whatever the feeling of feeling tired or lazy Distraction, worry, doubt, confusion oh, These are the hindrances So through practicing mindfulness these disappear Once they start to disappear Then one enters into what the Buddha called the jhanas Now the jhanas are usually seen in orthodox Theravada Buddhism as samatha practice As a practice based on a concept Sort of um, prior to insight meditation and it's interesting about the sutta is he's clearly talking about practicing mindfulness and insight meditation first uh, and, and based on that there will arise the jhanas and this is fine because the Buddha talked about different ways one can practice samatha first vipassana later, vipassana first samatha later, vipassana and samatha together and anyone who says it has to be this way or has to be that way is being dogmatic for no reason. The mind is organic. It doesn't work in this way. The Buddha gives these very sort of um, clear step-by-step -step practices. It makes you think that that's how the mind works or that's how the path has to work. And it's really not like that. It's messy. And sometimes you have to... It's like guerrilla warfare, really. You have to... Try all sorts of different things It's not like an army Where you can just march into battle Even when armies march into battle It's me messy and chaotic We're at war with our minds Which are me messy and chaotic And you can't just charge in But the jhanas are types of Meditative calm There are states of concentration And these come about in, in various forms in, in any type of meditation and they're described in different ways And ten different teachers would they describe them ten different ways So all this argument about them is really Really just, I don't know It seems like meaningless or, or, or useless or counterproductive We shouldn't argue about them We should just have a general understanding of them And accept that there are different ways of practicing and attaining these I'm not going to go through them in detail um, but what I will say is that what the Buddha says about these states, the states of, and these are really the states of attainment in the practice. As you practice, you're going to attain states of success. You're going to successfully 
cleanse your mind uh, and the Buddha says someone who is wise will not yet come to the conclusion that the Buddha is enlightened right remember this was the whole thing will not come come to the conclusion the Blessed One is fully enlightened the Dhamma is well proclaimed not yet be sure about the Buddha about his teachings about people who practice his teachings and it's important because it is, it is even more common for people who have gained attainments in the practice you know their mind becomes very still to become so confident that they're just sure that this is the way now it's not wrong to be confident I mean this is again this is the evidence that we're looking for but it's evidence not proof so the evidence is good it's a sign that yes we are doing something right because we're gaining benefits from it but it's not yet proof and so to, to sort of summarize to, sort, to, to condense this uh, but you know apart from those when one attains where are we having been co become concentrated in this way, having gained these attainments, one directs the mind to the knowledge of the destruction of the taints, the destruction of defilements. Asava. This is where the Buddha talks about the asava. So the asava are, is a description of defilements, things in the mind that get us caught up in the world, get us stuck to samsara, things that... Uh, keep us from being internally composed and at peace with ourselves at peace with reality at peace with the world so one understands this is suffering this is the origin of suffering this is the cessation of suffering this is the path that leads to the cessation of suffering One understands the Four Noble Truths, which means one has fully understood suffering. One has come to understand why why we suffer. And this is really what the, the whole of the practice of insight meditation is about. We practice and we see that it's not our experiences that cause us suffering. It's our attachments to them. It's our um, investment in outcomes. You know, if it's like this, I'll be happy. If it's like that, I'll be unhappy. This and only this will make me happy. Things must be like this. Let them not be like that. Let this come, let this go, and so on. May it come, may it go, may it stay, may it leave. May it be, may it not be. This is where suffering comes from. And one comes to see this, and, and not only understand it intellectually, but really gain a sense of objectivity where one sees things without reacting to them experiences reality as it is as we think it is we think sitting here we're objective right or we thought so until I forced you to sit here for 46 minutes and listen to me talk on and on and you can see how we're not really objective we react to everything we like it you know, we dislike it even we want to pay attention, but our minds get distracted. We're not really here at all. You know, we're not at peace, and we're not. Well, we're not enlightened. It's not to be blame. It's not blameworthy. It's well, it is, but it's not something to be feel guilty or bad about. It's just something to realize has to be remedied with some urgency. And so, this is what our practice leads us to so when one sees when one understands this and, and fully understands the cause of suffering and, and realizes the cessation by giving up the cause it's not intellectual it's from repeated observation to the point where one has something like an epiphany where it's not really an epiphany but it's the sort of the breaking point where one sees again and again and again and again and again until finally the mind says, I get it. It's called um, knowledge through inference. Because you can't ever understand that everything, that nothing is worth clinging to, 
what about all those things I haven't experienced? Maybe there's something out there that I haven't experienced. And this is a, this is sort of our common feeling. It's not really an intellectual feel, belief, but even though we've come to see that this is this is unsatisfying, well, the grass is greener over there. Maybe that'll make me satisfied. But this is what changes. One becomes convinced, not through seeing everything, but through seeing enough one realizes that the nature of reality is is this and it's not intellectual one's it just has enough gets fed up it's a little more complicated than that but or detailed than that anyway but basically that's it and this switch comes the mind just flicks a switch and that's the real that's when it drops out and realizes cessation the experience of cessation well then one um then one really knows that's that's proof you know, which is interesting because proof is really not something that we talk about in scientific investigation what could prove something and this is unique because it is proof it's proof it's it's something completely outside of the realm of suffering and so then one knows for sure that the buddha is enlightened and that's what it means to see the Buddha, right? Remember we talked about this woodsman who actually sees the, the elephant. Well, that's not, the, 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 the parallel is not going to see the Buddha and saying, oh, look, there's the Buddha. The Buddha said, yo dhammang pasati, so mang pasati. Who sees the truth sees me. And so one who really sees the Buddha is one who has seen Nibbana through practicing the teaching. And he says, at this point, the simile of the elephant's footprint has been completed in detail. And then Janusoni, this Brahmin, decides that he wants to become a Buddhist. And he says, from this day forward, remember me as a follower who has gone to refuge, gone for refuge to the Buddha, for life. Which is a common ending for these suttas. So um recommend reading it, but hopefully from this brief teaching you've given you've gotten sort of a another picture of how some some insight into how the path works, some idea of the path of insight. That's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.